I would invite you to once again bow with me as we ask God to bless his word this morning. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this incredible story that you shared with us of your servant Moses. Lord, thank you that you showed us his story, not just in all of its good parts where he was faithful and and did the right thing, but you also showed us where he failed, where uh, where he didn't do the right thing. And we see that in this story this morning, Lord, of how you had to take Moses and shape him into the man that you needed him to be. And so I pray, Lord, that as we hear this story, you would as well do that work by your word, by your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives, that you need to do work in us. Lord, uh, there, are, there are things that we have yet to do in your service that you are still even now preparing us for. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning would be a part of that preparation. I ask that you would do your work in me and in each one listening today. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sword flashed from its scabbard in one fluid motion. And then it struck forward with skillful precision and murderous intent. The blade found its mark sinking deep. The man on the receiving end of the thrust staggered. The look in his eyes registered shock at being betrayed by one of his own. And then he crumpled to the ground his Egyptian blood soaking the sand beneath him. Glancing quickly around, the Egyptian prince was certain that no one had seen what he had just done. But even if they had, he reasoned to himself, who amongst the slaves would report him? He had, after all, just killed one of their oppressors, one of their cruel taskmasters who would beat them relentlessly and without mercy. No, if anything, they would thank him, and they would praise him for his courage in protecting them. Perhaps they would even want to make him their leader. No, he had nothing to fear from the Hebrews. He had done nothing but endear himself to them. And with those thoughts, he quickly cleaned his sword, sheathed it in one fluid motion, and then grabbing the fallen Egyptian slave driver, he dragged him further into the dunes, completely hiding him from view of the construction site. With another few minutes of work, a shallow grave was dug, the man buried, and the sand covering all the evidence of what he had just done. Returning home that night, the prince was confident. No one had seen, no one knew. He had gotten away with it, or so he thought. The very next day, getting up bright and early, the prince left his royal residence, mounted his personal chariot, and headed back towards the construction site, and the scene of the crime. As he rode past the great pyramids, a small flicker of doubt crossed his mind. What if one of the other Egyptians had already found the body, realized that he had been the last one with him and put two and two together? But just as quickly as the doubt arose, he brushed it aside and reassured himself. No one had seen, and besides, who would suspect a royal prince of murder? So by the time he arrived at the construction site, he was brimming with confidence that the Hebrew slaves would soon realize that not only was he one of them, but that in fact God had appointed him to rescue them from their oppression. But what was this? Why were they fighting each other? As he arrived, a small group of onlookers surrounded two combatants in the middle. They were exchanging blows, and he jumps down from his chariot, runs over, and shouts, Men, you are brothers. 
Why do you want to hurt each other? And for the briefest of moments, the combatants stopped. They glared at him. But just as quickly, the aggressor lunged forward, shoving him to the side. Instinctively, the prince recoiled into a defensive position, his hand falling naturally to the hilt of his sword. And seeing the motion, a scornful smile crossed the man's face. Who made you ruler and judge over us? What? Do you want to kill me too? Just like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? The words cut through the air like a knife, and it found their mark with devastating effect. The color drained from the prince's face, and a cold chill gripped his heart as the full implication of those words hit home. They knew. Someone had seen. And far from being grateful, they were cynical of an Egyptian prince portraying himself as their would-be rescuer. They wanted nothing to do with him. They were rejecting him. And then the final realization caused him to turn and begin running. They had told. The Egyptians knew. And they would be coming for him. In fact, they were probably already on their way. He was now a marked man. And just like that, Moses, an Egyptian prince, raised in the finest luxury, education, and sophistication of the most powerful nation on earth, became Moses the fugitive murderer, running for his life into the wilderness of Midian, all that he had ever known and all that he had ever hoped to achieve on behalf of his people, was now gone. And that night, as the pyramids faded from view, Moses gave one last backward glance and believed that he would likely never see them again. Now, this story is so familiar to most of us that it's just easy to brush past the details. But this morning, I want us to stop and consider Moses not as the mature and wise leader that he becomes much later on in life, But let's consider Moses as he is in this narrative, the brash, young, impulsive prince of Egypt. It's clear that Moses believed that what he was doing was the right thing. He was identifying with the people of his birth rather than with his adopted nation of Egypt. Moses also believed that God would use him in some way to rescue the Hebrew people from slavery. So if he was doing the right thing, Why then did everything blow up in his face? Well, unknown to Moses, he still had a lot to learn. God was preparing him as a man and as a leader for a rescue mission that would be far more daunting and challenging than Moses could have ever imagined. And in order for Moses to be God's man, in order for Moses to be able to lead God's people out of slavery and into the promised land, he had many important lessons that he needed to learn. And the first lesson was this. Moses needed to learn to depend on God's power, God's strength, rather than on his own. We left off in part two of our series in Exodus, on chapter two and verse 10 with this verse. And the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called him Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. But then between verse 10 and verse 11, nearly 40 years is passed over in complete silence. Now, we all know that a lot can happen in 40 years. Just think of all that's happened in our world and in your own life since 1977. Can anyone catalog all the things that have happened since 1977? 
Some of you, like me, weren't even born yet in 1977. A lot has happened. And so it's amazing to go from verse 10 to verse 11 and consider that this entire period of Moses' life is skipped over without any details being given. Interestingly enough, it's Moses himself who's the author of this. And he chooses to skip over these years of his life. However, some very important things took place in those 40 years. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 22, Stephen, in his speech before the Sanhedrin, helps fill in some of the blanks for us. Listen to what he said. Verse 22. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now this tells us that Moses was given a remarkable education. He was, he was educated by, of that period in history, the most sophisticated, mighty superpower on the face of the earth. Historians believe that he was likely given his education at the Temple of the Sun, which is referred to by historians today as the Oxford of ancient Egypt. He would have studied the various sciences, mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, medicine, religion, philosophy, and the law. He would have undoubtedly learned all about the many gods of Egypt as well. And it appears that he was an excellent student, for the verse says that he was mighty in words and deeds. Now the fact that he was also mighty in deeds indicates that as an Egyptian prince, he was undoubtedly given military training and also had experience in warfare. Though the details are subject to debate, the first century Jewish historian Josephus writes in his Antiquities of the Jews an account of how the time when Moses was 30 years of age, he had skillfully been appointed to lead the Egyptian army to victory in a campaign against the invading Ethiopian army. Now, whether this is Exactly as it happened, it's an extra-biblical source, so we have to take it for what it's worth. However, there is much to indicate that Moses was not only of keen intellect, but also able-bodied in military matters, in fighting, and in leading an army. All of these things Moses would need to use in leading the children of Israel to the Promised Land, defeating enemies along the way, and eventually defeating the inhabitants in the land of Canaan. But Moses would need much more than human ability or wisdom or strength to be successful. He would need to put his faith in God and to be harnessed in God's power to have success. Now Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 to 26 gives us a little bit more insight into Moses in those first steps towards doing that. Hebrews 11 verse 24 says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now this tells us that at some point in that 40-year span, as a young man, Moses made a critical decision to place his faith in the God of his people rather than in the gods of Egypt. And in doing this, he thereby rejected his privileged Egyptian royal status, and he chose to identify instead with the Hebrew people. Now, everything about Moses' decision to identify with 
an enslaved people rather than with the royalty of which he was a part of their family. Everything about that, it's, it's remarkable to consider what he was willing to sacrifice in order to be identified with the people of his birth. And so everything about this decision was, was something that we could look at as good. He put his faith in God. Everything was noble about it except for one thing. Moses thought that he could do God's work in his own strength. You see, Moses was confident in his own ability, and so eager to help his people and outraged at the way that they were being treated, Moses made a rash decision, and he took matters into his own hands. Acts 7 verse 24 says, And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Now it is tempting to think that as Moses witnessed the abuse of his fellow Hebrew, he simply was just overcome with, with anger and, and indignation in that moment, and, and in intervening, he accidentally killed the Egyptian. But Exodus chapter 2, verse 12 portrays this as a premeditated act. Notice what it says. Glancing this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, this isn't just something where, whoops, I killed him by intervening. No, he knew what he was going to do. He had looked this way and that to see if anyone was watching before taking action. Yes, it was in the moment, but he still thought it through enough that this was a premeditated act of violence. It was a premeditated murder, even in the defense of someone who was being wrongfully abused. And though Moses' motives were right in wanting to defend his fellow Hebrew, his methods were wrong. That old saying, the end justifies the means, is not a biblical principle, by the way. God not only cares about what we do, but also how we do it. You see, while Moses looked around, he looked around to see if anyone else was watching what he was going to do, one thing Moses failed to do was he didn't look up. He forgot that there is a God who always sees what we do. No matter what, even if, man, even if man doesn't see, God sees. Moses looked around, but Moses failed to look up. Yes, Moses knew God's will was to free the people and to use him to do so, but the problem was he hadn't bothered to seek God's method and God's timing. Rather, Moses was trying to do God's will in his own method and according to his own timetable. And as a result, he fell flat on his face, and he failed. And this can so easily to happen, happen to us as well. You know, we begin at the right place. We begin by discerning the Lord's will, taking that time to search the word, talk to other believers, pray about it, and come to a place of understanding what God's will is. But then, we can so easily make the mistake of then thinking it's up to us and our human skill and our human effort to achieve God's will. But as Zechariah chapter 4 verse 6 says, Not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. You see, we need to learn that what God wills to be done, God will provide the power to achieve. What God wills to be done, he will provide the means to see it through. You see, God doesn't need us to provide the power to fulfill his great commission. 
Of course, the Great Commission is to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the Great Commission. Is, is it something that we are humanly capable of doing, going into all the world and preaching this gospel message to every single creature on the face of the planet? No, it is not humanly possible. You see, God doesn't need us to provide the power to fulfill the Great Commission. What he needs from us is that we be a yielded vessel willing to be the conduit for his power to flow through us. Now take, for example, the big power-generating windmills just across the border that the red lights are always flashing to the south. If you haven't seen them, you haven't been looking because they're right there. I know some of you live in their shadow. Let's, let's take those, those windmills just for an example. Are they designed to somehow spin those giant blades and generate electricity on their own? Can the windmills in and of themselves generate electricity? No, they cannot. They are designed to simply point towards the direction of the wind and harness the wind's power by simply allowing the wind to do all of the work by turning their blades. And so too, God has designed us to simply point our faces towards heaven, to be yielded to him, in line with him, and allow the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow through us, thereby harnessing God's power in us to do God's work. You see, Moses was wise in the ways of Egypt, but he needed to learn to become wise in the ways of God. And this lesson is one that we as self-sufficient Canadian Christians need to learn as well. We cannot achieve God's will apart from being harnessed with God's power. It's so easy for us here in the West to be self-sufficient, to say, well, we've got it all. Like the church of Laodicea, we're rich in wealth, we're rich in in ability, we have so many things going for us, we can do God's work on our own. But God's never called us to do his work on our own. It has always been to simply be yielded to him and harnessed in his power, and then he will flow through us. We need to learn this just as Moses did. The second thing Moses needed to learn was to not race ahead of God. Day after day, Moses, I'm sure, watched the injustices that were being done to his people, and he grew increasingly impatient. I'm sure he began to think that God was taking too long in freeing the people, and so, growing impatient and eager to do something about it, he rashly took matters into his own hands, and he kills the Egyptian taskmaster. Now, the question to be asked is, did that taskmaster deserve the punishment? Did he deserve to be punished for what he was doing, wrongfully oppressing these people, cruelly beating them? Did he deserve it? Well, yes, he did. But when Moses stepped in with his own version of Operation Deliverance, he was energized by his flesh and not by the Spirit of God. Invariably, when we act in the flesh, we also race ahead of God. We get ahead of his timetable, and it's destined to fail. Charles Swindoll puts it this way. Neglecting to ask God's counsel, neglecting to seek God's timing, you step in to handle things on your own. And by and by, you've got a mess on your hands. You're stuck with a corpse, with a shovel in your hands, and a shallow grave at your feet. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 says this, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. Wait for the Lord, and he will save you. 
You see, we see a lot of injustice and evil in the world all around us, and even some of it being done to us. But rather than attack the oppressor, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord, comfort and help the oppressed, and trust that God will save you. Now imagine what might have happened if Moses had simply, rather than attacking the Egyptian, had simply helped the Hebrew slave back to his feet had comforted him, had tended to his wounds, provided his own personal physician to make sure that he was well taken care of and even gone home with him for supper that night. What would have happened? What would have been different? Perhaps Moses might have even begun to earn the trust of the Hebrew people. See, he does identify with us. See, he is one of us. See, he could be our leader. But he didn't do that. Instead, he acted hastily. He got ahead of God And so everything was derailed just for the moment. You see, Moses needed to learn patience. And little did he know how sorely it would be tested in those wilderness years to come. We can see Moses' impatience flare up through the story and the narrative in the pages to come. We see this anger flare to the surface years later when, coming down off of Mount Sinai, he throws the Ten Commandments down, smashing them to pieces on the rocks when he sees the people worshipping the golden calf. Later on, we again see that anger flare to the surface when, rather than speaking to the rock as God had commanded to produce the water, he uses his staff to strike the rock, and God dealt with him accordingly. And in my experience, patience can only be learned one way. I wish it was an easier way than it is, but patience can really only be learned one way. It can only be learned by facing situations that require it. That is how patience can be learned. And as hard as it is, if we desire to be useful to God, we must learn to wait on him and not race ahead. Learning patience, we have to face situations that require it so it can be exercised. Because patience is much like a muscle. It can be developed, and we can learn it through being patient in situations that require it. Moses needed to learn this, and he had to learn it, unfortunately, the hard way. Thirdly, Moses needed to learn more in the wilderness. You see, so often we learn more in the wilderness than we do in the palace. Let me ask you, who likes to succeed? Anyone? A couple of hands are sheepishly going up. I do. I like to succeed. Who likes to fail? Anyone? Anyone love to fail? Oh, yes, a couple of hands are going up. Good. You know, I don't love to fail, but I will look back on my life and say I've loved some of the things I've learned because of failure. Because the truth is, the truth is we so often learn more through our failures than we do through our successes. You see, isn't it interesting that when writing all of this down, Moses chose to skip over entirely his upbringing and his success as an Egyptian prince. He just skipped it over. Verse 10 to 11 doesn't write one word about it. And Moses instead chooses to introduce himself at the point of his greatest failure. Why did Moses do that? I believe that by doing so, the older, wiser, mature Moses was emphasizing that it was not he, but God who had delivered his people. And that God was so great that he could even use a failure, a hothead like Moses, to carry out his plan. 
In fact, God was going to use the hard lesson of failure and the subsequent 40 years that Moses would spend shepherding sheep in the wilderness of Midian to teach him things that he could have never learned in the courts of Egypt. And so let me ask you, in your life, when you look back over it, would you say that you've learned more in your success or in your failure? Where have you learned the more valuable lessons? Or to get more to the point, have you become more dependent on God after you succeeded or after you failed? You see, I've learned that human nature is such that after success, our tendency is to pridefully look in the mirror, take the credit, pat ourselves on the back, and say, boy, I did such a great job. But yet when we fail, that's when we tend to humbly look up and say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Please help me. You see, failure only defines us if we don't learn from it and don't grow beyond it. Failure only defines us if we don't learn from it and don't grow beyond it. Perhaps some of you are in a wilderness moment right now. Perhaps you're in the middle of some sort of failure, whether it's, it's morally, spiritually, something that no one else even knows about, but you're in this place of failure. You're in this wilderness moment, and you just feel helpless. You don't know how to fix it. You don't know how to get out of it. Moses tried to hide his failure by burying the body in the sand. That's a very human instinct, isn't it? One that we all have to some degree. When we fail, we hide it, we deny it, we excuse it, we rationalize it, we reinterpret it. But the best and only real way to handle failure is to fess up. Fess up. Call failure, failure. Call sin, sin. Admit we were wrong. Confess where we have sinned. Because then and only then can we receive God's forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration so that we can go on in his service. So long as we refuse to call our sin out for what it is, so long as we fail, refuse to admit our failures, where we have fallen short of God's glory, God cannot use us until we humble ourselves and confess before him. So if you are in the wilderness of failure, I want you to take heart. Because whether you know it yet or not right now, God desires to teach you something very important. So look up. Listen and learn. Because once the lesson is learned, then the next phase of your service to him can begin. After Moses returned from the wilderness of Midian years later, he was a different man, humbled, dependent on God's power, harnessed in that power, and much more patient to wait on God's timing to do things God's way. May we learn from Moses and do the same. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, thank you that you were so incredibly patient with Moses. Thank you that in him we see, Lord, a man who, a murderer, who failed, who rashly killed someone, not according to your will, but according to his own. And Lord, you even took a man like that, you taught him the hard lessons, Lord, but that he yielded to you and that by faith you harnessed and used that man unlike almost any other man that has ever lived. The man you grew to call the friend of God, the man who would see your Shekinah glory face to face. 
Lord, this is where that man began. And so I pray for anyone here today who's in that wilderness moment where they failed, where they feel like they just can't get out of it. I pray, Lord, that right now you would give the grace, the strength in your spirit to cause them to look up, to humble themselves before you, confess their sin, and say, Lord, I need you. Help me. I can't do this without you. And Lord, I pray that for each one of us, we would learn that without you, we can do nothing. Without your power flowing through us, we can do nothing that is pleasing to you. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us would become aligned to you more and more, that it would be your Holy Spirit who would blow through us in such a way that whatever we do would be empowered by you and your strength rather than our own. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.